So usually when I scroll through my phone on social media, I'm always looking for something interesting. And recently I've been seeing some very funny memes. One of them was the Pope. And the Pope was in a white, long puffer jacket. Now these are fake images, essentially made by AI generators. And they're funny in a lot of cases. A dog riding on a tricycle on the moon. You've got it. A realistic photo of a politician doing something they shouldn't. You get the idea. But I'm starting to realise that there's a bit of a dark side. For example, I organised a conference all around disruption. And one of the sub-themes was computers and we were speaking about AI models. And one of the speakers put a prompt for a diverse boardroom and result was anything but diverse. It was four Caucasian men sitting around a table. I'm George Amaphidon, and you're listening to Create the Future from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. And today, we're looking at how artificial intelligence may be changing the artistic world forever. So how do these models actually work? How are they going to shape our world in the years ahead? And how do we deal with the many concerns that surround this technology like intellectual property theft, built-in biases, and the future of artistic work? We we have to think seriously as a society about what we want. I'll be speaking to Michael Osborne, Professor of Machine Learning at the University of Oxford. It's arguable, at least, that these AI models are a form of theft. And Brianna Brownell, data scientist, tech commentator, and artist. For me, it heralds a new age of imagination. We'll just kick off. If you could both uh, self-intro yourselves, that would be amazing. I'm Brianna Brownell. Um, I work in AI, but I've been creating art with computers for about 20 years or so now, actually. Through my work in mathematics, I started becoming really interested in the way that technology and creativity can come together. Hi, so I'm Mike Osborne. I'm a professor of machine learning in the University of Oxford. I'm also co-founder of a spin-out from the Department of Engineering Science called MindFoundry, which now employs about 70 people. In addition to my kind of technical work, I'm also interested in the societal impacts of AI. So Michael, you're a professor of machine learning. What do you do in your day job and how did you end up, I guess, in this line of work? So I ended up doing machine learning as a result, largely of reading too much science fiction as a kid. (laughs) And so I came to Oxford to do my PhD in 2006, and I've kind of stuck around ever since. But around 2012, with advances in AI coming on thick and fast, I began to get interested in how those advances might impact on the world at large. So I wrote a paper with an economist and friend, Carl Frey, looking at how much work might be automatable with advances in AI and robotics, whose headline finding was that 47% of then current US employment might be automatable, was the principal investigator for a project that ran between 2019 and 2021 on AI and art, um, looking at how AI might be changing the nature of artistic work. And Brianna, what about you? Yeah, well, good question. So I started in data science and moved into the AI machine learning space about eight years ago or so. The thing that I really saw was the possibilities that came with working with language data and unstructured data like images, like videos, all of those kinds of things. And so I've seen how fast it's grown and how amazing the sort of new technologies that are coming out have been. So today we're talking about 
all things AI art generators and these have exploded onto our screens over the last couple of years. I've seen it on my social media feed more than ever before and they're getting more impressive and it feels like our world is going to change in pretty huge ways uh, with this technology. In your perspective, do you think it really is? Oh, I absolutely do. I mean, looking just at the uh, image generator tools, I think that it brings the ability for everyone to be able to express themselves through these tools. And to me, that's really exciting because for a long time, doing anything with some of the advanced models was quite difficult. You needed to know how to program. You needed to uh, you know, have a lot of compute behind you to be able to create anything. But the, these tools are accessible to everyone. And so anyone can go in, they can express themselves, they can play with it, they can have fun, uh, they can use it for serious tasks. There is so much possibility, I think, in some of these tools now. So for me, it heralds a new age of imagination. We can use these tools in many different ways. And I think that being able to bring some of those tools to everyone is really, really important. And it's going to be uh, a huge change for a society. I've seen a lot of the art and it's very hard to decide whether this is actually AI art or not AI art. Michael, what's your perspective? You've written a lot about the promise, uh, but you come also with a humanitarian you know, perspective. So you're looking at the dangers of what these AI models are and how they're really going to transform the world. What would your perspective be? Is it just fun? I think they certainly are fun. And I'd echo everything that Brianna just said, but um, you know, I feel we should also flag some of the quite legitimate concerns about these models. So while they are democratizing access, that also comes with ramifications for labor market outcomes. And so I think there is a big shakeup coming. I think there'll be lots of loss of income for human illustrators. I think there'll be exacerbated precarity. Um, and, you know, coupled to those concerns is the fact that, um, you know, it's arguable at least that these AI models are a form of theft. That is, many artists have raised concerns about the way that the models have been trained non-consensually. You know, I think we'll have to come up with recognition of how these models should be trained, how it's acceptable to use the work from human creators to create tools that might actually replace those creators. Yeah, I've I've definitely tried to go at uh, making a logo for my company on, you know, using the AI generator. So I didn't go to our head of design. I just thought, oh, you know, let me try and do that. And it did a pretty good job. It did a pretty good job. I know people are able to make websites with that, and that's probably going to be the next step. So I guess we'll come back to some of those concerns that you've mentioned, Michael, a, a bit later in the convo. But first, I'd like to go into a little bit more detail in terms of how these models actually work. So Brianna, perhaps you could give us a bit of a live demo and I could give you some prompts as well. If, for example, we went for a pop art print of Lewis Hamilton with a flat tire. Okay. Pop art print of... Hopefully it knows Lewis Hamilton at this point. <laughs> It's always surprising what it knows and doesn't know. Every once in a while, something really obscure, it'll completely nail. And then something really popular, it just cannot understand. <laughs> At the moment, we've got four kind of quadrants 
it's becoming clearer over time. You've got Lewis Hamilton <laughs> sitting on tyres on both of them. I think they're, I'm not sure if they're Pirelli tyres. They look very much like a Formula One tyres. Uh, one of them looks like Lewis Hamilton, the one on the bottom right. They've got his hairstyle. I can see his hairstyle on the top, in the top right one. Um, it's actually very, very interesting. It doesn't look like the tyre is flat, but on the picture on the bottom right, he is looking like he's trying to fix the tyre on a Formula One car, which is, which is impressive. Maybe it is a flat tyre. It's all about perspective, isn't it? It's a slow puncher, maybe. I love the the teal and the you know bright yellow and bright orange. I think that it's very to me that's very pop art. I'm trying to think, would I have another one uh, if we went for Max Verstappen and Lando Norris on a podium in Formula One? Do you want uh, any style? Do you want a photograph? A photograph, yeah, a photograph. That would be perfect. And each time it's rendering, is this what it does all the time with all the different generators? Yeah, so basically it starts completely random and then it starts kind of refining and choosing the most like your prompt. And then it continues to refine in that way until it's very, very clear. This is actually very interesting because it's got Max Verstappen and Landon Norris, which looks like in, in some of the photos. However, they're both in Red Bull suits, but Lando is from McLaren. All four of these definitely look like photos. I would say the top left, uh, the bottom left, that looks very realistic and they very much look like they're on a podium. If, if I could comment though, in the, in the top left, um, one of them has got too many fingers. The figure on the left. Oh, do they? <laughs> which is a, a common problem. Ah, see, that's a great observation. Great observation. So they've still got a way to go. Mm-hmm. Fingers is, is always a complaint with the um, image generator tools. I think uh, uh, that's one way that you can always sort of spot it if you see <laughs> too many fingers. I love it. I love it. Now, that is super interesting. In terms of, of you, Michael, you know, can you explain how the model is actually able to generate the images we're seeing and what it's actually doing? The starting point for these models is training on really, really large data sets of images, a billion or so images perhaps that have been scraped from the web. And so after having studied these billions of images, um, the models are able to identify statistical relationships corresponding to the concepts, the deeper underpinning descriptions of the images. The data set of images on which these models are trained, exhibit a great deal of regularity. That is, as um, complex as images could potentially be, actually most of the photographs that humans take, most of the illustrations that humans produce are not so different from each other. There'll be lots of photos in this data set, for instance, of two people standing next to each other against a blue sky, probably lots of images of exactly this scenario of two Formula One drivers on a winner's podium. And so um, the, the models actually are able to capture the concepts that we usually describe with images. So from the captions that are linked to the photos on which the model is trained, the model will have learned the concept of what a Formula One driver looks like and what a podium looks like. And so then when we ask it to produce an image of these two particular drivers on a podium, it can start with its complete noise image. And then the model, just as Brianna described, iterates by kind of 
imagining images within the noise in the same way that we humans can sort of imagine an image within clouds and successively that image is refined to um, get closer and closer to that that is expected given the prompt. I'm pretty curious, why did these models struggle with fingers and, and hands in general? Oh, right. Well, actually, Midjourney has got a lot better on hands. <laughs> so um, at, at the moment, Midjourney is actually mostly correct in the number of fingers that it's provided. But the, the reason historically that these models have been poor at hands is that hands are very rarely the centerpiece of images. It's very rare for you to take a photo that's just of a hand. And even when you do, often the hand is holding something like a, a glass or you know, a prize, a trophy or something. And as such, the hand itself is often occluded. You don't get to see the whole hand. So for that reason, the images on which these models are trained don't give very good pictures of hands. They don't give the kind of, you know, full 360 view of what a hand looks like. And so that hand concept is not typically well picked up from, you know, just uniform crawling of the web. To improve that, what Midjourney has done is to supplement its traditional training set with images that are more explicitly of hands to try and improve this particular feature. Brianna, as an artist, what really excites you about this piece of technology and how are you using it in your own work? So for me, this is a, a real exercise in imagination um, because I think that there's um, a way that you can use it for essentially as a, a brainstorming partner. When I'm working on sort of a creative project or a fiction project uh, with something like Midjourney, I can think of the concepts in my science fiction story and I can type it out and I can see what it might look like. And for me, that's amazing because every once in a while, you'll see an image where it sparks an idea and you think, hey, what about that? What if that was part of the story? For me, that's amazing because you can get farther faster than you could on your own. It gives you that momentum to move forward because all of a sudden you have these images that capture what's in your imagination. And by using that, it's much easier to sort of sculpt what the story might look like. And Michael, I know you've spoken with artists on this topic as well, and I understand that you're married to an artist too. So how and why are artists currently incorporating AI into their work? Oh, right. Well, yes. So my wife, Isis Yort, is an artist who's been using AI as part of a longer process of artistic creation and, and actually is doing so to kind of fight back against AI. She says that she's cutting up AI with a kitchen knife and her process is that she takes photos of um, some of her own artwork and then feeds those into image generators to produce variations and then prints those variations out on fabric and then cuts them up, cuts up these pieces of fabric to create collages and then paints over the top. So. You know, I think it's a good illustration of how AI can be used as a tool within a much larger sort of pipeline to create a piece of art. It's not that the AI itself is doing, um, you know, most of the creative work. And I, I think that's true of how AI will come to be seen by many artists, and kind of exactly as Brianna was describing. While there will be places where AI will be used as a complete replacement for work that was once done by an artist. I think the more common story will be one of artists 
realizing that this is just another tool in the way that artists in the past have um, realized photography as a new tool. And um, even when photography replaced portraiture, at least parts of the portraiture in the past, you know, after photography emerged, painters created new forms of painting that were instead of being like photographs were completely different. So pointillism, for instance, was a reaction to photography in producing images that were very distinctly non-photograph. What I'm taking from you both is the ability to use AI in some way as a thought partner and uh, bring in a lot of uh, thoughts or kind of ideas to life um, in some form and then building on that as opposed to it being the final you know, destination. So thank you for that. Uh, Brianna, this is an engineering podcast. Uh, what happens if you type engineer into the generator? What actually comes up? Yep. All right, here we have engineer. On the top left, how would we describe that? Is it someone within some facility of, of sort? It's a Caucasian man with some goggles. Uh, bottom left, I don't know if they're in the tunnel. So there is no woman here or potentially people of colour, which is interesting. Um, Michael, maybe you have something to say on this. Oh, yeah, a lot to say on this. So you're absolutely right to pick up the fact that all the engineers produced here are Caucasian men. And this is a huge problem for AI in general, not limited to these text or image models, but common, in fact, to large language models and many other forms of AI. They are absolutely and horrendously biased. And, um, you know, the concepts that they learn are often the worst, the most biased, the most racist and sexist. Um, and so I, I think, you know, there are, there are real problems here um, if these models are integrated into larger workflows. Um, and, you know, this is a big topic of debate within AI and indeed in um, thinking about how these models should be regulated. If I gave you another prompt, which was in some ways uh, still related to engineering, but with a little bit more context, a group of young engineers in Brixton. So just to note, Brixton is a very multicultural town within London uh, that, you know, has a great diverse population. And yeah, there's a lot of different people that work there. So it would be great to see the result. This is interesting. So on the top left, let's use our imagination. These are some young people, perhaps on work experience uh, related to construction. Some of them have hard hats. And the last two images at the bottom, uh, again, look like um, young people that are perhaps on the visit to a construction site with some high vis. Any, any thoughts on this? Well, I mean, you're absolutely right, George, to flag that it's super interesting that when you say engineers in Brixton, you get hard hats and high-vis vests, but when you just say engineer, you get this kind of steampunk, high-tech background because engineering is a diverse discipline and there are many types of engineering, you know, electrical engineering, electronic engineering, information engineering. But, um, you know, here Brixton seems to be associated with perhaps the less high-status forms of engineering and construction. Why exactly are these models biased and how can we fix this problem? Yeah, so it all has to do with the training set. Um, unfortunately, because the world has been biased in the past, there are almost undoubtedly more photos of uh, white male engineers in it. And so when it is rendering the image, 
it's looking at those series of images in order to create that new image. And so in order to correct it, there are lots of initiatives working on this very problem uh, to either try to rebalance the training set so that it's more diverse and has a wider variety of images to use to train the model um, or to sort of impact the output of the model itself. Sometimes they will add a word to sort of add to the diversity of the images generated. And, and for Michael, I guess one of the engineering challenges of improving these models is that we don't necessarily understand, or I don't for sure, how these algorithms, you know, really come up with their output sometimes because it, it's like a black box. And that's obviously one of the engineering challenges. Absolutely right. So um, I think it's fair to say that no one really understands at a deep level how these models work. Deep learning, the kind of unifying technology is built on creating these enormously high-dimensional architectures with literally billions of parameters, weights and biases, which are learned from this opaque optimization algorithm. So it's a real problem, I think, when these models are put into high-stakes applications, applications where the decisions may have impact on real people's lives, that they've been designed with so little consideration given to their interpretability and our ability to oversee the ways in which they're making the decisions they are. Definitely. And Brianna, we spoke earlier about how these models are trained on artwork without artist consent. I think Michael mentioned that and stealing their intellectual property. How do we actually deal with that? I think that's a really good question because a lot of the complaints of artists that these companies have used their images either without permission, for example, ones that were watermarked, um, or they're using them without compensating the artists. I think those are extremely valid concerns and something that we really need to think about and take seriously because a lot of the people whose information is within these data sets, they've trained for months, for years, for decades in order to build these skills. And it just, to me at least, it feels like there should be more of a uh, respectful partnership approach with these AI tools to the people whose work is what make these models work, right? And so I really think that what it comes down to is having a conversation about what we want in terms of the ethics around the creation and the use of these models. And what I hope happens is a broader conversation with a multitude of stakeholders. Right now, a lot of the conversations are essentially between the large tech companies and lawmakers. And I think that we need to stop doing that. We need to really think about who should be a part of that conversation. My argument is that everybody should be a part of that conversation. I think that we are delinquent on our responsibilities as developers in AI if we exclude the general public, for example, from these conversations. I don't think that we should just be creating whatever we want and then try to force society to just deal with it. Thank you for that. And Michael? Oh, well, I'd, I'd say firstly that I completely agree with everything that Brianna just said. 
we, we have to think seriously as a society about what we want. I mean, I, I just don't think it's a good idea to put all human illustrators out of a job, for instance. I think we'd lose a lot as a society if we did so, even if these models are capable of doing some of their work. Um, and one thing I would say in addition is that AI is not one thing. AI is many, many different things. There are many, many different technologies in play being applied to many, many different areas. And I think each of those need to be considered to some degree separately. I think we need to think deeply about each of the potential impacts of AI, the harms that could be caused, but also the benefits that could be brought, as well as doing some upstream rulemaking as well. I think there do need to be rules placed upon big tech, those firms that are developing these models, as well as rules that govern the application of those models to particular use cases. Final question from me, for both of you, uh, would be, what do you see as the future of AI art in the next five years, 10 years? What do you kind of see the short-term, medium-term, and perhaps long-term uh, kind of vision uh, when it comes to AI and yeah, the generators that we have now? So maybe I can tell you what I hope will be the future of AI art. What I hope will be the future is that more people can use these tools to express themselves creatively. I hope that the tools get easier to use, more powerful, have more ways that a human creator can impact them and essentially create something from their imagination in the way that they want to. And following that thread, what I hope happen happens as a result is that we have this beautiful flowering of new creations in the world that are created by people who may otherwise not have been able to express themselves with the tools that used to exist. What I hope is that people will be using them to have a great diversity of new things that they can create and ways that they can invite other people to experience those stories. What I'm afraid of is mass mis- and disinformation campaigns. I'm afraid of people using these tools not for human empowerment, but disempowerment and essentially being able to use these tools to um, uh, oppress using the tools to uh, take people's livelihoods, using the tools for, um, you know, as Michael mentioned, job loss, economic harms, um, things like that. So I think that we are at the perfect time to start really thinking about what we want as a society and how we can hopefully steer towards the outcome of creativity and expression and flourishing of humans around the world rather than a sort of dystopian dark future where um, AI creates all of the art and uh, humans are not no longer the creators of art. So I absolutely agree that um, these tools are an immense spur for creativity and democratizing access to the ability to create art of your own. And I think that's a wonderful thing. But just as Brianna said, there are many harms that may be generated as well. Um, I think there are concerns about the generation of deep fakes, um, particularly because these tools could use to be create um, 
essentially propaganda at scale. In the past, of course, you've been able to create fake images using Photoshop, but it's taken time, it's taken skill and effort in a way that these models automate. And now what you could imagine is producing targeted messages for even individual social media users in an automated way, prompted by what their social media output is. You could say, produce the image that's going to be most persuasive for them voting for my particular political party. And, you know, I'd worry about the impacts of those kind of campaigns on our democracies. You know, I think with so many things happening all at the same time so rapidly, um, there could be many potentially destabilising consequences. We haven't even got on to the role of these technologies in the military, where undoubtedly they will play a role, and in which we could see a kind of upsetting of the established world order. We could see, for instance, AI used as a kind of destabilisation of the balance of power between the great states. So many things to worry about. And so I'm glad that so many people are thinking so seriously about the impacts these models have and how they should be governed, how they should be regulated. And uh, I'm looking forward to the conversations that will be taking place later this year in the UK as part of the PM Summit to see if we can begin to make some headway on um, what to do about these models. I very much agree. I hope that the listeners can see this AI image generators or AI art generators as an opportunity to use it as a force for good and use it as a thought partner and enabler for progress and creativity and everything that you've just mentioned. So thank you, Michael, Brianna. And yeah, I'm excited for the future and all the problems that are yet to be solved. I'm, I'm sure we're more than capable of uh, making that happen. So thank you for joining me today and sharing your perspectives. You're very welcome. Thanks a lot for having me on. And thanks, Brianna. I thought that was a great conversation. I found the conversation with Michael and Brianna very fascinating because this is the first time that I've personally actually played around with an AI art generator and there's a lot of opportunities I would say in the first instance for these AI generators to empower the creators and provide a level of creativity and innovation that you know we may have not seen before but there's also racial and gender biases that I also implicated uh, within these generators because of the data sets that they're using to actually inform the end result and lastly the fact that these could potentially be replacing the people that produced the work that actually built these models is one that we obviously need to as a society um, find a solution for but by the end of the conversation even though I could see the dark side Michael and Brianna you know, really left me optimistic in terms of we have humanitarians within the rooms that will actually be shaping these future technologies and ensuring that as we create the future that we actually build one that is equitable and serves us all. You've been listening to Create the Future, a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering and Peanut and Crumb. This episode was presented by me, George Amaphedon, and was produced by Anand Jagatia. To find out more about the podcast and the work of the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering, follow Kiwi Prize on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Take care.